Hello and welcome to Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. If you're on social media, follow us on Twitter at 814NEXT. Like our page on Facebook. Uh, feel free to comment on both platforms and lend your voice to the dialogue. For those listening on radio, thank you for tuning in. Today I have the distinct honor of going one-on-one with Mr. James C. Sherrod, Executive Director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Center. James, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on to the show and uh, let your listeners know what's going on um, with the Martin Luther King Center and everything that's uh, impacting our people that we serve. Mm. So people may wonder, one-on-one with James Sherrod, that's kind of an unusual, that's a big deal. The King Center has a lot of phenomenal things going on, and you've been very busy, and there's a lot of things that uh, people may not be aware of. I know that you have been on uh, somewhat of a tour, just letting people know from various agencies, entities, and organizations and know what's going on with the King Center. So we want to really unpack your story thoroughly. There's a lot to discuss today. We want to talk about Martin Luther King III, who was just in town for your annual dinner. We want to talk about a lot of his comments and commentary during his speech, a lot of interesting things going on there. We want to talk about the building project that you have going on and a lot of the upcoming activities for King Holiday soon. Let's start with you personally, though, James. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a, you're an Erie native, correct? Um, I would indirectly. say indirectly, <laughs> I would say I'm an Erie native. Uh, I've been here since I was uh, three years old. So uh, this is the only town I know. This is the only city I know. Uh, my family moved up here from the south very early when I was a young child. Uh, been in Erie the majority of my life. Um, elementary school, high school, college, uh, didn't leave, you know, so grew up in the John F. Kennedy Center area, so I'm used to um, what occurs at social service agencies, and uh, I believe that's what led me to uh, get more involved in uh, the Martin Luther King Center. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your educational journey. I know that ultimately you ended up at Mercyhurst College. Give us your journey leading up to that. Tell us about James Sherrod, the young man. (laughs) Yeah, it's not that interesting. First of all, uh, went to public public schools uh, up until tenth grade. Uh, going into my eleventh grade year, uh, I left East High School and went over to Cathedral Preparatory School, where I graduated in 1981. Um, had a sort of a falling out with um, some coaches at East for the in the athletic areas that I played in, and so. Um, had the opportunity to go to prep, and I did. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one of a few African Americans at the time that was at the school, and it was um, very challenging. Mm. You know, the uh, academics were uh, very. I mean, they were different. <laughs> they were different than when I was at East Middle School. Mm-hmm. It took me um, a very long, hard time to uh, progress. You know. I went from carrying notebooks home uh, and not studying to carry my whole locker home and studying three or four hours a night, you know. So it was a, a definite challenge, but I made that made it uh, happen, you know. Um, because I was involved in athletics, I had many opportunities to uh, go to college or university, um, but I wasn't feeling it at the time because of the challenge that I faced uh, graduating from Cathedral Prep. It was very overwhelming at the time. So um, the scholarships that I had offered to me, I turned them all down. I wasn't going to go to school. I was going to uh, stay around Erie and just get a job and, you know, help my, help my family out that way. Um, 
in the summer of uh, 81, I guess it was the beginning of August, uh, wired-haired coach from Mercier's University uh, came down to my doorstep, and my mom and I were sitting on the porch, and he says, I- I've heard a lot about you. I want you to come to Mercyhurst. I'm like, what for? He says, I'm starting a football program, but I want you to be the anchor on it, you know. So my mom told him, you know, uh, my son ain't going to no school. He, he, he doesn't want to. And this whole discussion went back and forth until uh, uh, Tony DeMeo said, you know, whatever your son needs, I'll take care of it. You don't have to worry about anything. Long story short, I went up to uh, a week later, went up to training camp and uh, graduated uh, from Mercier's University with a elementary education uh, BA and with special ed and coaching as my background. Mm. I noticed on social media, Prep Villa has their own Facebook page and they featured on a post you being presented the jersey by Jason Easter. <laughs> they pointed out that you two were ex, you know, alums of Cathedral Prep, ex football standouts, things along those lines. I had Jason, Mr. Heidelberg, and Chet Moffin on the show a while ago and we discussed just the whole prep aura and the orange and black legacy and it's um the legacy of its african-american athletes in particular what was that experience like for you as a young african-american male at cathedral prep well you know i think um it it was very impactful you know knowing that at the time that i was at cathedral prep there wasn't a lot of minorities attending the school you know so you sort of stuck out like a sore thumb you know uh, but I can tell you this, that the treatment from the other students at the school was, uh, was very good. You know, um, they always had positive things to say and supported you throughout, supported me throughout my time there. Uh, didn't have any negative interactions, which a lot of people from the community in which I grew up in, uh, public housing off of Buffalo Road, you know, we used to always talk about the students at prep and say very negative things about them, you know. But when I got there, arrived there, I found it not to be what we all talked about, you know. Very supportive staff, very supportive students, you know. I think in my graduating staff, in my graduating class, there may have been five of us, you mm-hmm. know. And since that time now, you see more minorities graduating and uh, going to keep cathedral prep because of the type of education that they read and receive and the access to uh, move on to post-secondary. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Where post-secondary is concerned, you mentioned a second ago, um, was it special education yes, and then social work? Special education and uh, elementary education. Elementary education. And you ended up going into social services. Yes. Okay. So... You know, from the outside looking in, you know, you can't read a book by its cover. You're, you're a big, gruff guy, you know. And I, I listen to those things. What what about you lends itself to that kind of educational pathway? Because normally there's something personal at play when you study these type of things. Well, as I said, you know, I grew up in the John F. Kennedy Center and uh, had a very uh, supportive uh, youth counselor over there, uh, Miss Ruby Jenkins' husband. And uh, I believe the training that she gave all of us that attended the John F. Kennedy Center impacted my decision to go into social services. Uh, She always uh, would call us professors and tell us that we could be anything we wanted to be, you know. So I came back um, to the John F. Kennedy Center to one of their youth events, and I was the um, key speaker. 
and looking out over the audience as I was speaking to them about uh, how this center impacted my life, I think that's when I decided that I wanted to go back, go back into social services. Uh, I know there is a huge need, uh, continue to be a huge need also in our community for uh, African-American men to be the light for a lot of um, kids, you know. So going back into, going into social services, I felt that I could have a very um, good impact on, on kids, you know, and try to steer them in the right direction, sort of like what I received when I was a, a, a young child. So I started out at the Martin Luther King Center as the youth development director and instituted um, academic programs, recreational programs, cultural arts programs, similar to the programs that I enjoyed as a kid, you know, to get students more involved in what was going on at the time at the center. Uh, I believe the center had gone through a couple youth development directors that had moved on to bigger and better things, and I wanted to continue that legacy of providing strong programs that would nurture and develop uh, kids. So let's talk a little bit about the agency. Let's touch on things that the average listener or viewer may not know. Real estate. The Martin Luther King Center owns a substantial amount of real estate and has have developed quite a few houses and homes over the years and encouraged home ownership. Talk about that whole journey a little bit, please. So um, I think in 1996 was the initial phase of developing uh, and changing uh, some of the delicate issues within the community. Mm -hmm. And through study sessions and so forth, which I was included on, um, housing revitalization development plan came to the forefront. Uh, Fred Williams at the time was the executive director and he led the charge of uh, aligning the community to move forward with a base for uh, home ownership. He believed that if you could put individuals into home ownership, you could change their lives. And so we instituted the housing program and had um, two strategies within it to um, become landlords within our community and to place individuals in our community that would stay in our community and be able to change it from the inside out. Let me extract a little piece of that before you finish. To become landlords in our community, why is that so important? Because it shows that um, we we have a, a stake in the community, that we're not going anywhere, and that we understand the uh, changes that need to occur, and we can lead by example. You know, Plus, it gives us the opportunity to work with our families to move them from where they are into home ownership, uh, assisting them become, to become more self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. At that time, we had a welfare-to-work program also. So we had a number of, of um, individuals in that program that we were training mm -hmm. for jobs and moving them forward. You know, So it was the right time to link these things together. You know, to go through our budget credit counseling class over the time period and get a certificate saying that you completed it, to establish checking accounts so that you can begin saving to become a homeowner. You know, so we could move people from our rental units into home ownership, you know. So we would work with them over this year time period. And these just weren't, you know, some some thrown up houses. You know, the investment in these homes 
well, I was in the $135,000 range. And with the support from various entities like PHFA, P Federal Home Loan Bank, the City of Erie's Homes Program, we were able to provide buy-down assistance so that families could get into home ownership, uh, a brand new home no one ever lived in for between fifty-five dollars and $65,000, you know. And that's a big um, um, advantage for some families, you know. And it wasn't like um, they didn't have the keys or the strategies to be successful because they were all trained in how to uh, manage their home, you know. Uh, so I think that investment in our community led to a lot of the negativity that was happening in the community to be uh, eliminated. Mm -hmm. Homeowners, um, houses created by homes. Can you give us an idea of how many homes you think that you have impacted in that area? Because I know that there's also the Plaza and Alex Thompson Apartments that mm -hmm. I want to talk about as well. But just residential homes. Give us an idea of the impact that you've had in that area. So... <clears throat> I think our, our initial housing plan uh, called for the development of six to 16 first-time homebuyer homes. And I think we ended up doing just over a dozen homes within the lower West Bayfront area. And those, as I said earlier, those homes were um, sold to individuals that qualified through our housing program. Aside from that, we purchased properties within that uh, service area, the five-block radius of our center, and rehabilitated those homes and put them on the rent market so that families that we deal with had the opportunity to rent safe, decent, affordable housing. You know, market rate rents for two unit uh, apartments would be $700 plus anywhere you go in the city. You know, well, our rents are very, um, very low, you know, and I think they're anyone that's looking for decent, affordable, safe housing can um, pay the rents that we have, you know. So if a, a two-bedroom is $795, a two-bedroom for us would be between uh, $425 and five, $525, mm -hmm. you know, so that's really affordable. Uh, within the townhouse units that we have, we have one on 2nd and Myrtle and one on 4th and Walnut. Those are all based on income. And so low-income families have the opportunity to get into, like, a townhouse-type uh, rental unit at an affordable cost while they begin to um, create their path to home ownership. You know, so over the years of our involvement in housing, we, we've only had one um, person that bought a house um, not be able to keep that home, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's a— a big story for any inner city program that does development, mm -hmm. you know. Alex Thompson Apartments, how many, tell us about that a little bit. So Alexander uh, Apartment Complex mm -hmm. is a 40-unit uh, senior citizen uh, complex that's located on uh, West 3rd Street and attached to our agency so that the individuals that are living there can access services at our facility without going outside into the inclement weather, you know. Um, this 40-unit uh, facility, uh, it's, it's the agency had tried for years and years and years to get the funding to develop this, you know. Uh, over the years, we typically have about 87 to 90 percent occupancy. Um, it's managed by the Bayfront NATO Martin Luther King Center. It is a separate corporation, the Alexander Housing Corporation, 
which has a separate board from our um, main agency, but members of that board are on uh, the AWT board. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, when it comes to property, you own the plaza right there on the corner of 4th and Cherry. Yeah, so the Mini Mall Plaza was built uh, in the early 80s and carries no debt. It was built debt-free, you know, and at the time, it was a uh, five-unit facility that had um, a restaurant, a store, cleaners, uh, and, and so forth in it. But it has transitioned over the years uh, to address the need within the community. Mm -hmm. uh, currently, um, there's a uh, grocery store, convenience grocery store that's there that provides access to foods for our community for those that are within walking distance that don't have transportation. You know, the bus line has changed. And so having this year store in our service area, it helps a lot of families, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, also, there is our administrative offices for women's and infants and children's program. Now, the women's and infants and children's program is tri um, owned and operated by the John F. Kennedy Center, the Booker T. Washington Center, and our agency. And so under uh, United Neighborhood Facilities Healthcare Corporation, we operate the Women's and Infants and Children's Program and the Sickle Cell Program in the city of Erie. Matter of fact, um, the Sickle Cell Program is um, the only type of program in Northwestern PA, and we serve all the way down to Meadville and Pittsburgh. We have clients. Uh, Ruby Jenkins' husband has been the executive director for that program for some 40-plus years. Our uh, Women's and Infants and Children's program uh, that we operate, we're in six different counties, and that program has been under the direction of Deborah Jameson for the past uh, 15 years or so. And she's a long-term employee that's been with the um, United Neighborhood Facilities Healthcare Corporation for nearly 40 years also. This is Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. We are in studio live with James C. Sherrod, Executive Director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Center. We've been going over um, the different uh, initiatives of the agency, some of the property that they have not only acquired, but the properties that they've developed and some of their real estate holdings. James, I want to talk a little bit about our West Bayfront. It's a name that a lot of people are familiar with. You actually had a hand in the creation of our West Bayfront. Talk about that a little bit. So our West Bayfront, um, you know, we, we did housing for a number of years and we did rehabilitation within our area for a number of years. And then, you know, we stepped back from doing that so that we could really figure out what direction we wanted to take the agency. And in that re respective, we figured that we would focus on developing strong programs from the inside out with uh, youth programs being the main component child care services being the second component, and cultural arts with uh, Erie Dance Theater being the third component. So the housing was put on the back burner until we could come up with a plan that would um, do what we needed to do for our community, you know. So in that time period, we start talking about uh, and working with Gannon University and neighborhood people to come up with a um, arm that could address um, sidewalks, lighting, access to funds for homeowners to rehabilitate their home, um, develop and strengthen what we provide within the community. And so um, the conversation started with Housing and Neighborhood Development Services 
Gannon University and the Bayfront NATO Martin Luther King Center. And a strategy was put in place. And we started some uh, community meetings to get input from people that live within our West Bayfront that have been living there for 20, 30, 40, 50 years to uh, see what their vision was for the community and how we could impact and change so that it became an inclusive environment and everyone had ownership within what could occur within the community. So through all those discussions and through all those interactions, uh, meetings being held at various locations within our West Bayfront, a uh, strategic plan was developed to address um, a multitude of issues. Out of that strategic plan, um, the ultimate goal was to hire a executive director to oversee the implementation of all these here items that would change and create opportunity for um, community voice to be heard, you know. And that led to uh, Anna Franz being hired as the first executive director. And this has been a, a four, uh, almost a five-year um, process. So it just didn't happen overnight. There's been a lot of input, a lot of people uh, meeting in the late hours to try to develop this. And thankfully, um, our West Bayfront has had uh, some positive support from uh, different companies and businesses and financial institutions within our community. And us all working together has allowed for some significant impact to occur and continue to occur. Uh, most, um, most of the things that are uh, in place uh, are in place because that's what the community wants, mm -hmm. you know. So uh, we're happy to be a part of uh, our West Bayfront, you know, and that they can be an extension of what we do and what others do within the community to impact and change lives. So the things that I haven't touched on are the things that I think the average person thinks about when they think about an agency like the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Center, child care, uh, youth development, um, things along those lines. Talk about your programs, your dance program in particular, because I know that that's something that your agency is particularly proud of. Um, talk about the <clears throat> youth development and some of the child care things that you offer as well. So um, just starting out with dance, uh, dance was instituted at the center in the late 70s. I believe that uh, the first uh, artistic director was Sharon Battles, you know, and that program um, has created some phenomenal dancers that have danced throughout uh, this nation and internationally. Um, our, our most noted person that has come through um, at the time, Erie Bayfront Dance, has been uh, Stephen Galloway. Who actually went on to be the choreographer for Mick Jagger for yes. several years. Very impressive. Yes, yes. So the, the dance program has transitioned uh, over the years, and I think there was a time period where we uh, faltered a little bit with dance, and we didn't focus enough on it, and we, we felt that, you know, uh, negativity from within the community and our students. And so we uh, rebuilt that relationship through a partnership with Erie Dance Theater. Um, Nate Johnson is the artistic director uh, that we worked with there and brought dance back into our uh, foothold. You know, and so now uh, Erie Dance Theater, which used to be a separate nonprofit, is actually a program of the Martin Luther King Center. 
and it allows for um, two strong personalities uh, and staff to come together under one umbrella with um, administrative support and direction that allows us to continue to be the number one uh, minority-based uh, dance program uh, in the city of Erie uh, and probably within the 100-mile radius of our agency. You know, and Erie Dance Theater has allowed us to offer dance to those that wouldn't get an opportunity to be involved in dance. And we do that because we provide access to uh, two dance classes for any child that's enrolled and attends our youth program activities, whether it be the, they have to have the education component, which includes uh, homework assistance or one-on-one tutoring or um, supportive learning. You know, we have a huge supportive learning uh, library that has uh, books for kids to be able to take out and read. And we have instructional materials on the other side of the um, room that allows for students that aren't uh, up to par in their grade level to be able to work one-on-one with a tutor, typically from Gannon University or from a high school where students are required to do volunteer hours, but they get to work one-on-one on whether it's science, math, English, history with um, uh, modulars that are grade-based. And so we're very proud of that and very proud to have the relationship with um, other entities that provide volunteers to our education uh, program. Not only our education program, but our recreational services, uh, arts and cultural services that we provide too. Because the... um, there's no limit to how many volunteers we can utilize on a regular basis. But uh, Erie Dance Theater has been quite successful uh, since we've joined together some five years ago, maybe six years ago. Uh, Currently, there's about 140 students enrolled. We offer classes Monday through Saturday uh, from the very young of uh, two years old up to senior citizens. Um, we have a satellite location, which is our main facility at 16th and Cherry. Uh, thanks to a partnership with a private donor, we're able to um, rehabil- re- rehabilitate that facility and offer classes out of there at a very nominal fee. Um, but as I was saying, uh, students involved in our youth uh, development program um, are able to take two classes. And if they like the classes, at the center, they can transition to the satellite site and begin their actual training, you know. So we create the base at our facility and try to transition students into the program. You know, we find that students that are involved in any types of arts, especially dance, uh, enhance their academic performance, you know, because it's all about discipline. Mm -hmm. It's all about being able to follow direction, to um, learn skills and techniques that will carry you on. It'll transition into your life, mm-hmm. you know. So we're very proud of that partnership that was created to bring dance back to the facility and be able to uh, grow the program at the uh, nature that we're growing at currently. So take everything that we've discussed thus far in terms of what the agency is doing in the city of Erie. Square that against the legacy of Dr. King. How does all of this work honor the memory of Dr. King, in your opinion? 
I think, you know, when you look at our mission and we talk about uh, providing uh, support for work, play, academic, access to uh, health um, and other opportunities that nature, I think it plays off of what Dr. King was uh, really trying to do is uh, create a strong person, not just a black person, a strong person, period, you know, that had access to everything that they would need and require that would be available not only for one section sector of uh, people, but for all sectors of people. So all of our services are available to anyone. You know, there's no uh, limit to your use and access to services or the support that our agency can provide to you. If we don't have the service that you're trying to access and are in need of, we can assist you in finding that services through the referral process. We have uh, people on staff that have been with the agency 20, 30 plus years that are very familiar with access points within our community. Uh, our thing is that you know we can't stand alone in trying to create uh, opportunity and access for families by ourselves and so we have to use partners you know and utilizing partners has assisted us in uh, addressing uh, workforce development academic progress um, and strengthen our base and civility you know so that I, I think that um, having uh, Dr. King's name attached to our facility carries a, a lot of weight and understanding for the people that we serve and they access our services because of that, you know, that the agency was formed by community people, you know, people wanting to have uh, a location for the kids to get off the streets and be educated and be able to recreate. And so when the facility was first uh, enacted or, or, or developed, those were the key services, you know. Uh, and then over the years, it's transitioned to be that agency that provides uh, access to services that can assist a person in growing their life. You know, we have a child care program. It's not just that we're taking care of your kid. It's providing opportunity for you to be able to be employed, you know, without having a consistent um, uh, person or staff in this case to uh, be able to. Uh, educate your child and nurture your child and care for your child while you're at work, you may not have that opportunity to be employed. You know, we have teachers that are degreed and certified uh, that work with these students from 630 in the morning till 1130 at night, Monday through Friday. You know, typically um, uh, about 55 to 70 students go through our doors on a daily basis between that time period. And the majority of them, I'd say at least 95% receive some type of uh, support subsidy to have their child um, in our daycare program, as with a lot of daycares within the city, you know. Mm. Um, what, but what's telling is that that other 5% that are private pay that can select anywhere for their child to go uh, bring their child to our facility, too. Mm. So that says a lot about uh, the service we provide, you know, that we're self-selected in a lot of cases. Uh, we don't do a lot of advertising because uh, we just don't need to, you know. But child care services has been a key to um, our, our overall operation of delivery of services uh, within the Bayfront um, 
service area, mm-hmm. you know. You're listening to Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. We're live in studio with James C. Sherrod, the executive director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Center in Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, James, recently for your annual uh, King Holiday Dinner, you had Martin Luther King III as your keynote speaker. Talk a little bit about him as a person. What was it like meeting him, and what was that whole experience like overall? You know, it took some time and some convincing um, to be able to uh, bring Martin III here to the city of Erie. You know, it's not something that occurs overnight, you know. Um, the board of directors, myself, and some key staff members have had um, hundreds of conversations about this opportunity to bring Martin III here and what that would look like, you know. Um, thanks for the support of the community and um, donors uh, that stood behind us. We were able to uh, create that opportunity to have Martin III come here to Erie, Pennsylvania, um, from the conversation since about a year ago uh, about Martin, you know, we, we, we dissected a lot of it to come to the point to say that, yes, this is something we want to do. And, you know, the board of directors fully supported um, bringing Martin III here. And so we laid the foundation to make that happen. As you all know, Martin III was our uh, 10th anniversary dinner speaker, and we're very proud of that. For me personally, um, the whole experience of being in his, in his presence was uh, quite overwhelming. You know, I could not help but to see his dad in his face and in his conversation that he had with us, you know, to the point where... Um, at some times, you know, it was bringing tears to me, you know. Um, that's how imp- how impactful this man was in coming to Erie for me. Having the one-on-one conversations were uh, different than speaking with his chief of staff and all the things you have to go through to work out the details, you know, which can set a, a, a different perspective for you. But... Um, meeting him one-on-one and having sit-down conversations and listening to the background that he brought forth from when he was a very young child, uh, interacting with his dad to uh, the circumstances that he deal with right now and trying to uh, still understand what, uh, why this assassination occurred, you know, and really trying to uh, figure that out, you know. Let's let's back up and start unpacking that just a touch. Let's start with President Trump. Now, there was an article that was written by Karen Travers and Kateri Jokum, and it says Trump breaks with past presidents on MLK activities. Last year, Trump was the first president in years mm-hmm. to not observe King Holiday via community service. Bush did it. There's documented photos of Bush doing it. Uh, Clinton, obviously uh, Barack Obama, President Trump golfed on King Holiday. Martin III, much of his conversation, he he went after kind of the activities of this president. And I think it's symbolic that President Trump did nothing but recreate on the day of King Holiday because he really addressed the fact that there seems to be a disconnect between the way this president does things and the legacy of his father. Talk about his commentary a bit on that. 
Oh, I would say that, you know, um, <laughs> Martin III isn't a big, uh, a large supporter of um, um, the current president that is in office. Uh, and, and there's a multitude of reasons behind that, you know. Uh, everything that his father fought for uh, and tried to uh, impact, it seems that the current president is against that, you know. Um, it seems that uh, there's more division that is intentionally happening under this current administration than I can remember from a long time. You know, it, se it seems like we're taking uh, a 50-year step back in some circumstances um, in, 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 in div making this divide happen, you know, uh, a divide that Martin Jr. tried to uh, bridge you know, and from our conversations with Martin III, you know, he, he sees that happening also. You know, he's uh, very vocal about uh, the negative things that he see that Trump has done to continue to uh, support the racist actions um, within our communities across our nation. You know, and it's uh, disheartening that... Um, individual of his circumstance, Martin III's circumstance, has to go through these here things once again. Um, you know, his, his dad gave his life to bring people together, you know, and I think um, it's evident by um, the social actions of previous presidents and the activities of previous presidents to bring, to, 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 bring that divide together, but I personally, I don't see that with um, um, this current president. There's a lot, there, there's, I mean, in, in all negative things, there are some positive things, you know, but in this circumstance, for me, um, the negative things outweigh the value of the positive things that are happening within our community. Jobs, uh, economic growth, I believe all those things were going to happen anyway. You know, he, our current president has just received those because he's the president in action, in, in office, you know. Um, but what, what, what hurts me and has me dismayed is the character that he puts out there to the community. You know, it's like um, he showed that he's a newbie, you know, and that he, he wants to do things his way and does not want anyone to uh, stop him. And if um, he does get pushed back and something happens that um, he has to take ownership of, you know, he tries to backtrack. So you had a mixed audience at this event in Erie, Pennsylvania. <laughs> the, the audience was mixed racially, um, ethnically. There was a lot of young and old people there. You also had a lot of DNRs there. And when Martin III took to the podium, much of his speech, a great deal of the body of his speech, dealt with what's going on in the White House right now. And he didn't shy away from it. From your vantage point, how do you think his words were received by that mixed audience politically? Well, I, lo I looked at some of the photos <laughs> from the event. And um, at different points where the photos were taken, you could see the facial expressions of uh, people change, you know. There were actual people, uh, a small number, um, exiting, 
uh, during some of the uh, parts of his speech, you know, and and that just gives a, that just gives me the understanding that they weren't comfortable and they didn't mm-hmm. want to be in a place, and so they took that opportunity to to leave. And not trying to cut you off, we romanticize the words of Martin Luther King Jr., but. Many of the words in real time were very unpopular. We don't like to talk about that part. You know, people weren't throwing roses Un- at this man after every speech. Un- unpopular then and still unpopular today, mm-hmm. you know. But we have to have those hard conversations, mm-hmm. you know. Why do you think everyone in the nation is talking about diversity, inclusion, uh, creating opportunities for all, not just one sector of individuals, you know. Uh, hard conversations are, are, are difficult to deal with, mm. you know, and people want to shy away from them and, and push them under the rug, you know. But we have to have open, honest, and frank discussion, and they have to be intentional. You know, otherwise we don't make any progress. So speaking of hard conversation, when speaking about, it seems like it's something different, but I'll tie it in. I've spoken to people about uh, the rapper Tupac Shakur. His outlook on law enforcement was very harsh when he was alive. And one of the things that I love to point out is here's a young man. His his mother, Feeney Shakur, was involved with the Black Panther Party. All of the Black Panthers, whether it's his, his godfather, Geronimo Pratt, and, you know, Asada Shakur, that whole group was on the FBI's most wanted list. This young man was being pulled out of elementary schools and being questioned by the FBI. So his hatred or disdain for law enforcement started at an early age under extraordinary circumstances. I say all that to say, Mr. King talked about at that very event you had, the role the government played in the assassination of his father and the whole rise of COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program. And I was glad that they touched on it because many people don't understand that. And so one of the lines that he used that I'll never forget, if I talked about everything that I have access to, all the information that I know, many people may be anti-government based on what I'm saying. How did it land on your ears when he talked about the role government actually played with taxpayer dollars? So I've been thinking about that since our um, dinner conversation with Martin III. You know, um, Martin III is not the person that we all believed him to be, you know, shy, reserved, and um, so forth, you know. I found him to be very open and honest and in your face about the information that he has, that he has uh, investigated and, and, and found out about, even as a child, you know, as a teenager and, and a young adult. Because um, he was 10 when Martin was murdered. Yes, and, and finding out all this information since you were 10 years old and still finding information out about how your dad was killed, okay? Killed, assassinated, taken out, whatever you want to call it, you know? And it leads us, leads me to believe more and more, you know, when, when, when these records of the government being involved in the assassination and, you know, putting a front man out there that would take uh, the blame for the, the shooting and so forth, that's what we wanted to believe. You know, this guy's going to pay because he assassinated the man that was moving things forward and making change for our communities across this nation, across the world. You know, um, 
it, it not only impacted us here, other nations were impacted by mm-hmm. uh, Martin's stance on uh, nonviolence, you know, and to be taken out so violently, you know, um, by the government, mm-hmm. you know, and I got to do a lot of, I, got, I have to, I, I tell you, I have to do more research on it, but I tend to believe the direction that Martin III was leading us into understanding and uh, that part of our conversation, I wanted to more find more out mm. about it because there, there's uh, always these points that come out, you know, every five years or three years about the government's involvement. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at uh, John F. Kennedy's assassination, and I believe he said Bobby's Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy's assassination, touched on all of that, and how Reverend Mock connected it. In his introduction of Martin the Third, so disclaimer: Do not email the station, <laughs> do not call the station at WQLN and challenge everything that was just said. We are analyzing the words of Martin Luther King the Third, as he is a guest in Erie, Pennsylvania, not too long ago, a keynote speaker for their annual dinner, and these are the things that he put forth in an interview, and we are mere, merely analyzing yes. what the man said. And it was groundbreaking information on many levels. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, the way he unpacked it, you know, and and talked about it so fluently, you know, and was able to support the theories. I think we all have to take another a closer look at mm-hmm. what really occurred. Well, there's been so much assassination, character assassination, where Dr. King is concerned. By no stretch of the imagination was Dr. King a perfect man. We are not naive. But at the same time, even posthumously, there's an attempt to assassinate his character. And I think that that's one of the things that Martin III wanted to address. So even even in the grave, there are people still trying to paint a certain picture of him. And so it was interesting that he addressed that. You're listening to Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. We're here in studio with Mr. James C. Sherrod, the executive director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Center. James, let's talk a little bit about the activity for King Holiday. Uh, Give us a a snapshot of what to expect from the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Center during that time, the actual holiday this year. So, you know, uh, we had our dinner earlier, early this year, uh, a week early than we typically have it. Uh, leading up to our dinner, we would typically have two or three activities to uh, get people used to what's, you know, what's going on within the community. So with the dinner already happening, we have a couple more activities that we're uh, sponsoring or part sponsors of, you know, with the largest uh, happening on the holiday. So let me back up here a little bit. So on this Saturday, uh, we will, in partnership with the African-American Concerned Clergy, uh, sponsor prayer breakfast at the Martin Luther King Center uh, in the green room beginning at uh, 10 a.m. And there's a guest speaker for that also. And we have tickets available for that also. Uh, so we're uh, partnering with the African-American Concerned Clergy to bring a message to the community uh, through this prayer breakfast. And on um, Monday, uh, we're working with the Erie Art Museum uh, to have a pre-March event where we will show uh, several uh, excerpts of Martin's speeches and films that um, have been put out there of him speaking and, and, and showing the crowd of um, 
that were at his events, along with uh, some great conversation and access to the art museum to see what it could be if we had a museum of our own, such such as you know a big gathering and, and, and uh, uh, King uh, Montoff going off all the time mm-hmm. and, and so forth. But anyway, let me get back to the schedule. So we'll have a pre-March event at the Erie Arts Museum uh, with coffee and donuts and refreshments from 1015 to 1145. And at the same time, we will gather uh, those that want to hang out in Nicole like we typically do, gather at Perry Square at 1130 and have re- have a coffee there Uh, for you to stay warm. But after the pre-March event at the Erie Art Museum, uh, we will come over to Perry Square and have a prayer. And then um, our March leader will get everyone in place and we'll begin to march at noon and march the uh, current route that we have been doing for the last uh, 29 plus years uh, down to the Martin Luther King Center where we will have a brief reef laying ceremony to memorialize the uh, death of uh, Martin Jr. And after the brief reef laying ceremony, we have a program inside the facility um, that will occur beginning at one o'clock. During that time where we're gathering for the program, we will provide refreshments there also. Uh, Typically this program is uh, a packed house, you know, there's no charge for it. We'll bring a couple key speakers uh, to you uh, potentially we have some, some singers and uh, some other people that will be performing, uh, especially our dance company, give you an opportunity to see not uh, what I was uh, talking about, about our dance program being successful. You can see that in action at no cost, you know, and we'll wrap that day up hopefully by uh, 2 o'clock. A question that we hear often, why the march? Why why do you march on that day? Why Why continue to do that? Talk about the value and the symbolism of that march that you do every year. So, you know, um, the march has been one of the key uh, components of what we do every year because uh, Martin was uh, in Memphis to support the sanitation workers, and they were going to gather and march for fair wages and and, uh, necessities to continue their employment, you know. And so we want to be able to, Uh, continue to do that so that people uh, understand the connection between Martin's death and why. But one of the key factors for moving things forward during the civil rights uh, movement was the gathering of people in masses. You know, Uh, if you haven't had an opportunity to go on the Walking in Black History trip that uh, Gary Horton from Urban Area Community Development Corporation Uh, provides to this community for our young people every year. And they travel to these key areas where civil rights was um, um, displayed, uh, marches occurred. Uh, I remember crossing the uh, Pettus Bridge, you know, getting to the the, uh, top of that bridge and looking down where everything occurred, the beatings and the, the, the... the horses being there and the policemen on on the horses beating people. And then as you transition and walk down there, for me, it was just too much. You know, chills, tears, goosebumps. It just took you back to that day. 
And so a, a lot of what we do, we want people to remember uh, why uh, Martin uh, is still a very valuable asset to us today. And so in order to gather people and um, allow them to reflect on this man's life and this March particular, I think is a key to continue to uh, propel our interactions together as um, people. I would think that in age of in the age of social media, where hypermedia and social media has actually isolated us more, most people fight their battles, albeit it's a waste of time and it's not it's invalid. Most people fight their battles from the keyboard nowadays and don't even interact. I would think that the march has more value today than it did then even, because to bring people together for a common cause, any cause, mm -hmm. has immense value because of the separation, wouldn't you think? Yeah, because you, as you said, you're not behind a keyboard and just typing things in. You are visible, you're seen. This is what I support. My actions are speaking louder than some keyboard clacks on a, on a uh, keyboard, you know. Uh, it's just like when they have the take, take Take back the um, uh, take back the site visuals. Take back the take back the site visuals and the 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 silent peace marches. Those have a specific purpose. Good point. You know, they have a specific purpose. Good point. And this march has a specific purpose. Mm -hmm. And it, it's it's an understanding that you have to get within yourself. You know, mm -hmm. you're not just coming out to walk in the cold and 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 come down and have some cocoa. You're saying that. I support everything that Martin Luther King Jr. was in his battle for civil rights for all mankind. That's what you're saying when you line up in that march line and you march those 15 or 20 blocks down to our, our agency and you participate in this here uh, reef laying ceremony on the replica tomb of Dr. King. You know, I like that you, that you pointed to that uh, take back the site vigil as an example, because with those sisters, if if the homicide, which is what they do, when there's a homicide, they go to that site, pray over that site for the victim and the perpetrator. And the perpetrator. In order to take the, back that site for the light as opposed to the darkness. What I love about that is I don't care if the, if the murder happened in front of a crack house in the worst neighborhood, that's where the vigil goes down. Not somewhere sanitized, not somewhere disconnected from it. And so the symbolism of that we cannot get out of the darkness without light amen amen excellent point james as we go towards the finish line here talk just a bit about um the well you know what tell me what does this feel like for you you already pointed out the fact that you are you've got close ties to one of the neighborhood centers the john f kennedy center and these three neighborhood centers have been uh, tied to the hip for many many years the jfk the booker t the martin luther king center what does it feel like being in this role after being a young person impacted by one of these big three? Well, I can tell you that um, I wouldn't change um, being a part of this for anything. You know, over the years, um, in one capacity or another, whether it was youth development director or director of operations or in my current position of executive director, the lives that this agency has impacted will last forever. And I say that because, okay, this weekend, we had some individuals involved with us um, in, in, in 
with Martin, coming, having conversation with him and hanging out with us. You know, one of those individuals grew up in the Martin Luther King Center, you know, from the time he was five years old and being involved and to speak with him, not only to speak with him, to hear Martin III uh, speak about the conversation he had with him Mm -hmm. in regards to the impact that the agency has had on his life and particularly the impact that the agency had when I was uh, a youth development director, that's what we want. Mm. You know, these kids can remember the insight that was provided to them as a young child for the rest of their life, and and they can come back and let us know how valuable that was. Mm. You know, we had a a harvest party uh, back in October. I must have seen about 10 uh, adults now that were children that was in our program that now have their kids involved. You know, you, you start in our daycare and you stay in our daycare. You go to our youth the program, then you become a mentor, then you go on to college. Where else does something like that happen besides mm-hmm. our community centers, you know? And w- w- the partnerships that we have created with uh, Booker T. Washington Center, John F. Kennedy Center, Urban Erie Community Development uh, Corporation uh, will forever impact and change lives. And more particularly now through the Minority Community Investment Coalition that uh, we've partnered to create, the Booker T. Washington Center, Urban Erie Community Development Corporation, and the Martin Luther King Center is going to enable us to touch lives from Cranberry to Bird Drive, from 28th Street to the waterfront, mm. okay? That's going to allow complete access in, for, for the distribution of services that we provide. And this is intentional. This isn't by chance, you know. And so we're working to develop a system that will be the system in place to further the growth and development of our neighborhoods. James C. Sherrod, the executive director of Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Center. James, thank you so much for coming on the show today. All right. Uh, We want to thank our sponsors for Next in Perspective, Infinity Resources, the Erie County DA's office and the Robert Benjamin Wiley Community Charter School. We want to thank you for tuning in to Next on WQLN. Join us next month as we explore another timely topic with local guests. For radio, tune in to 91.3 FM on the fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m. I'm Marcus Atkinson for Next on WQLN. We will see you all next time.